All right, let's, let's bow in prayer. <clears throat> we are thankful, Lord, for the provision that you make for us. We're thankful, Lord, for the opportunities you give us each day to serve you. And we're so thankful, Lord, as we study these passages of Scripture that we have truth that is applicable to the life which we live today and instructs us in the way that you would have us to think, the attitudes we should have, and the way we should walk. Lord, I pray that our hearts and, light and, and minds will be illumined today. We ask that your spirit will be near to each of us during this time. In Christ's name, amen. As long as it's not too rhythmic, <laughs> we'll get along. <laughs> I suppose we could pretend like we're having a class in Africa or someplace, you know. Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sari, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And it will come about when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife. And they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. And it came about when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore he treated Abram well for her sake, and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, his wife, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. We have to project ourselves back nearly 2,000 years, 4,000 years in time in order to put ourselves in this particular sequence of events. And of course, we have to put ourselves several thousand miles away, geographic. And what's very interesting about this is that although the Israel of today looks quite a bit different from the Israel, the land of Canaan, that Abraham would have seen, the Egypt of today isn't really that much different. Uh, the Egypt of today is still the narrow valley of the Nile River, and the bulk of the people today still live in that valley. Oh, sure, there are modern cities and roads and cars and that kind of thing, but if you travel over there, you'll discover there are plenty of the archaic things around, too. And uh, the water buffalo is, has not disappeared as a, as a beast of burden. It's, um, it's a world that I think, in some ways, Abram would still recognize at least part. He would definitely recognize the pyramids, assuming that he saw them. We aren't sure where in Egypt he went to. We're not sure if he went down towards the head of the delta, not far from Memphis, or if he was down close, closer to the Mediterranean Sea. It doesn't say. Uh, some feel that he was closer to the Mediterranean. Whatever was the case, uh, certainly much of what he would see today was similar, at least, to what he saw 4,000 years 
years ago. But what is important about this passage is not really the geography or, or the history or, or the facts of the pyramids or any of these other things. What's important is this passage demonstrates how a man of God can trust God implicitly under one set of circumstances and then forget all about God's promises and act according to the flesh under another set of circumstances, which means what? That the circumstances are determining his reaction to God and to those around him. And unfortunately, this happens to us too often. Is, is that not true? Sometimes the circumstances dictate what we think about God and how we trust in God or don't trust in God. The circumstances seem to guide us and, and we, we tend to think, well, under these circumstances, maybe we can't lean so heavily upon these promises because God expects us to use our own brains, right? Well, God does expect us to use our own brains, but not if it means diminishing our faith in Him. The famine is, of course, the primary circumstance here. Because of the famine which was hard upon Canaan, particularly this would be true in the Negev for reasons I mentioned last week, they migrated across to the valley of the Nile and the delta of the Nile, which, of course, was maintained uh, in its green condition because the waters that fed the Nile did, did not come locally. They are not from local rainfall. They fall thousands of miles away in eastern Africa. So there the famine had not struck. Now, famine can strike Egypt. And we know the story uh, later on from Joseph's day when famine did come. And that meant, of course, that there had to be a, a tremendous decrease of rainfall in, in eastern Africa, in the Ethiopian highlands, and then even further south in the Lake Victoria Basin for this to be true, for the Nile to drop as low as it had to drop for famine to strike Egypt. And just think about that for a minute. We don't even recognize how profound that must have been because the Lake Victoria Basin is a, is a forested area. And, and it's an area which is subject to considerable rainfall. And part of the water is fed from the Ruanzori Range, the mountains of the moon, which have their tops up in the clouds and are covered with glaciers. When you start adding all that up, you have to recognize that it, it was a profound thing God did in order to bring famine to Egypt in those days of Joseph. But that's a little further down the line from where we are right now. Abram migrated with all of his herds and all of his household into the delta of the Nile. His knowledge of the ways of Pharaoh, however he gained that knowledge. Now remember, Abram is moving from the center of one great culture now to the center of another great culture. He originally had lived in Ur of the Chaldees or Ur of Sumer. And Sumer, of course, was in its dying days when he left. But Sumer was the earliest, the Sumerians were the earliest uh, civilized people that we have direct records of. They preceded the Egyptians by a few hundred years in the quality of their civilization and culture. So he's moving from one now to one of the other ancient civilizations. It must have been very, very fascinating for him in some ways. He had migrated virtually the whole extent of the Fertile Crescent, which, of course, was a... That's a... Uh, a 19th century term that was uh, instituted by a British historian 
uh, the term fertile crescent, but it's very applicable to the uh, visual image you get of looking at a map of the strip of territory from the Persian Gulf to the first cataract of the Nile, where you have uh, enough rainfall or water available, at least through rivers, to provide adequately for people in an urban <coughs> as well as a <coughs> rural setting. Satan used whatever understanding that Abram had of Pharaoh and of Egyptian culture to strike fear into his heart. Fear for his own life. And we recognize in this passage that as a result, he brought Sarai in as an accomplice. And he told her, of course, you're such a beautiful woman, how, how about lying for me? You know? and, and saying that you're my sister. And of course, we've noted that she was his half-sister. So it wasn't a, what, a, a total lie? <laughs> whatever that is. But uh, she agreed, apparently, simply because, as we, we read in Hebrews, she, she referred to him, or con her attitude towards him was that he was her Lord. And so whatever he requested of her, she did, at least as far as this particular event is concerned. Now, God had promised to him they would make of him a great nation, and that God was going to grant to him this land, Hard to do if you're dead, right? Hard to do if you have no children, no offspring. At least physically, it would be hard to do. But in spite of that, fear replaced faith. And he put Sarai, God's plans, and his own future in jeopardy by not trusting in the God who had made promises to him and it appeared to him face to face. Well, just as he feared, Pharaoh took Sarai into his harem. I'm sure at that moment he was saying to himself, huh, it's a good thing I prepared, I told you so, you know, I'd be a dead man otherwise. And we discover that in exchange, what does he get? Well, in verse 16, therefore he traded Abram well for her sake, which of course is what he was hoping for, he didn't want to die, and gave him sheep and oxen, and donkeys, and male and female servants. Probably this is where they picked up Hagar. And female donkeys and camels. Probably by the hundreds. You know, not like a pair of each or something like that. Probably a fairly significant amount. After all, this was uh, a bridal gift from the Pharaoh, the god king of Egypt. He wouldn't give some petty little gift. It must have been massive. And as a result, of course, uh, Abram's wealth is multiplied. But I think in spite of all this wealth you're looking at or you're reading about a very unhappy man. Again, in the words of Charles Spurgeon, surely these gifts must have given Abram but little pleasure. He must have felt mean in spirit and sick at heart. Can you can you just sense that? I think so, as we read this, this particular passage. Certainly, he loved Sari. I think he loved her deeply. And I think she loved him. I think there was uh, all of the natural human affection involved in, in this particular re relationship. And I, I really feel that probably neither slept much during the nights that followed. He alone in his tent and she in the harem in a strange environment, 
something she had not been accustomed to all of her life, living amongst hordes of women, uh, being catered to and prepared for that day when she would come before Pharaoh himself to become his, quote, wife. <laughs> I don't know how you become a wife when there's so many of them involved in that same particular status. I believe that undoubtedly they both berated themselves for their folly at this point. I think the Spirit of God was working in their hearts, causing them to be very uh, dissatisfied. And I really do believe, even though it doesn't say it here in so many words, I, I believe they cried out to God. I think they knew God well enough to cry out to Him, to pray to Him, to talk to Him at, at this uh, particular moment. Abram was certainly feeling helpless in the situation. What could he do? I mean, already he had told a lie to save his own neck, and now his wife's been taken into the harem of the Pharaoh. What could he do? Even though he had probably dozens, scores of, of warriors within his household, what was he going to do against the great armies of Pharaoh? There was nothing that he could do in and of himself. And I'm sure that he felt very responsible for this predicament. Why shouldn't he? He was responsible for it. You know, like they say, <laughs> uh, you know, if you are guilty, you should feel guilty, right? He must have agonized in prayer. Let's, let's look at Psalm 34. It's kind of encouraging. No, but there would have been translators. Uh, Pharaoh would have had a harem probably made up not only of many Egyptian ladies, but of many foreign ladies, because it was very common, as you know, in the world in those days to seal alliances and relationships with other countries with exchange of, of high-bred women that would become part of the harems of their respective uh, kings and queens. And uh, even Solomon did this, as we, as we know. And, and they didn't have to speak the language. Of course, they would be taught it, uh, but there would be plenty of translators around. And, of course, there's always the language of love, right? <laughs> Don't need to be able to speak the... <laughs> Psalm 34, verse 4. I sought the Lord, and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to Him and were radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Now certainly Abraham could not read this passage as it would, have, it would be written by, by David hundreds and hundreds of years later. But we always are reminded, at least I am as I read from Genesis through Revelation, of how God repeats the truths of, of his character and of what he does on behalf of his people over and over and over again. And what was true for David is true for us, and what was true for David by extension was true for Abram. Although Abram lived before this promise was penned by David, it still was God's promise because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because he is immutable, unchanging, Therefore, what God was then, he is now and forever will be. And so that truth would be so for Abram, even if it wasn't in so many words. Knowing God, though, there would have been instilled in his heart, I believe, a basic understanding 
of the character of God. Isn't it wonderful that God does not write us off? When we commit colossal blunders, maybe you have never committed a colossal blunder, but Abram did here, and I think most of us have more than once, and we discover that although we act faithlessly at times and we walk, act sometimes in a worldly manner, God does not abandon us. When Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age, I think he was fully aware of the fact that his disciples and those that this would apply to down through the centuries would walk awry time to time, would spend a, a, a time apart from even trusting or proclaiming the name of God that they had at one time proclaimed. God knew all of that. And yet, in spite of it all, he said, I will not abandon you. I will not leave you. And so it would be here. Abram may have been powerless in this situation, but who wasn't? God, right? God is never powerless in any situation. God is all-powerful. And so God is at work. And it's so encouraging to me to read these accounts and to realize that God will help us even in the midst of our failure. That God even is, is preparing circumstances to extricate us, knowing that one day we will turn to Him and cry out to Him for help and in repentance. Abram did his best to foul up God's plan. Ever done that? But God made it quite clear that he not only was, but is sovereign. I think it's very important for us to always remember that whatever we believe about the ultimate uh, battle that goes on in, in certain theological circles of predestination versus free will and all of this, whatever we believe, there is no doubt about the fact that Scripture teaches God is sovereign. God rules over the universe. And uh, I think I've mentioned this before, um, some people make this little, use this little statement, God is still on the throne. And that is true. God is still on the throne. But uh, I personally would like to strike the word still because it seems to imply the possibility that there might be a day when he's not. And that is, uh, of course, incredible. <laughs> God is on the throne and always has been, always will be. In the days when... Sorry, he was being groomed. Now, we, we know, remember the story of Esther. Esther was taken into uh, Hashuera's harem, and uh, she went through a process of preparation before she was brought before the king. And this is very common in the harem. You don't just walk through the harem door and bang, you're in bed with the king. No. There's a days of preparation, days when you are made so that you will be presentable to the pharaoh as uh, an Egyptian pharaoh would want a woman to be. And certainly that included many things having to do with courtesy and proper manners and the th way to respond to his lordship, his deity, as pharaoh was viewed in Egypt. So in these days, while she was being groomed, and we're not told how long that was, but I believe it was a period of at least many days, if not many weeks, God struck 
Pharaoh's household with plagues. Let's turn to Psalm 105. This gives us, I think, some real insight into what happened here and God's role in the midst of it all. Psalm 105, verse 8. He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac, then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. When there were only a few men in number, very few, and strangers in it, and they wandered about from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no man to oppress them, and he reproves kings for their sake. Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. Uh, brought within this psalm is the event we're right, talking about right here. In fact, I think that's what the last two verses are at least partially speaking directly to is the event we're reading about here. Pharaoh was a pagan, of course, but he was supposedly divine. He was closely related to the whole mythology surrounding Horus, the falcon-headed god of Egypt. And somehow he was son of God. That is, Pharaoh was son of God. So he had this divine situation. Now, that differs from the condition that existed through most of Sumerian history. In Sumerian histories, history, the, the king was sort of a viceroy of the gods, but was not himself divine. He was more like the pope is in the Catholic Church relative to the gods, rather than being as the Egyptian pharaoh was, actually a divinity. And we find this common in many places in the world. If you go, for example, to the Aztec culture, you discover that the Aztec culture, their god, I mean, their, their king was sort of a, a priest to the god, but he was not divine himself. But then you go to the Inca culture, and you discover that the Inca, the ruler, was in fact divine. And so this was commonly practiced among pagans in one form or another, and so it was in ancient Egypt. Pharaoh could not understand, therefore, what brought this calamity upon his land. However, he was superstitious, and therefore he was certain at least it came from the gods. The gods had to be responsible. Almost all pagan cultures believe that whenever things go wrong, the gods are somehow involved in it. It's funny, it's in our, quote, Christian culture that we feel everything is, is flesh and physical and we don't even think often, at least our culture in general, doesn't even think about spiritual aspects. But you go to the pagans, and they know it's a spiritual war. And, and they know that, that unseen forces are at work. In many ways, they're closer to the truth than much of, quote, Christian America or Christian West might be. I believe that he may have come to the truth here about what Abram and Sarah were doing by one of three routes, as you'll notice there on your outline. First of all, he may have come about through deduction. No plagues. Sari comes into the harem, plagues. Ever since she's been in the harem, plagues. He might have deduced a connection there. 
Somehow the plagues are connected with this woman. That may have been the way by which he discovered that something was awry. Secondly, he may have received a revelation from God. God may have appeared to him in a vision or a dream. It does not say so in the passage. So if we follow that, we have to just assume that that's true, although there is a later example of, of that being the case. God may have. It was very common for people to believe in the importance of dreams and visions in those days, as we know particularly from the story of Joseph vis-a-vis -vis what? Egypt and Pharaoh later on. So uh, this could have been the method, although it doesn't say so specifically. Or thirdly, he may have come about this information through investigation. One of his agents may have been out there attached to Abram's household, kind of poking around and, and just checking on things. And uh, through someone in Abram's household, he may have discovered Sarai is Abram's wife. So by whatever method, be it deduction, revelation, investigation, a combination of all, he came to realize that the trouble was upon him and his country because he had another man's wife. Now you might think, so what's the big deal to Pharaoh? <laughs> David later on, right, the godly man had another man's wife, so how'd he take care of it? <laughs> the very thing that Abram feared. Isn't that amazing? Think about that. The, the thing that Abram feared about a pagan king doing to him is what a godly king did to a Hittite serving in his army. However he obtained the facts, Pharaoh's reaction was very, very natural. He was angry. I mean, he was pushed out of shape. I mean, he was outraged that Abram and Sarai should lie, boldly lie to him and accept all these gifts without ever letting on that they were man and wife, husband and wife. I think that Pharaoh invoked all of the Egyptian gods. <laughs> you know, I, I think he called on Seth and Isis and, you know, the whole pantheon of, of Egyptian gods, you know, Amun and Ra. And, and nothing happened. He called and he called and he had his priests do all their incantations and all of their sacrifices and rituals and it made no difference, which brought him to the place of realizing that whoever was responsible for this, he was far more powerful than the deities of Egypt. I think that partly explains why he did no harm to Abram and Sari. I mean, the guy could have executed him, just said, off with their heads, <laughs> to quote another famous theologian. He, he, he could have done anything to them, imprisoned them. He could have at that point killed Abram and said, well, now she has no husband. Uh, many things he could have done, but he did not do that. He simply bawled them out and sent them out. Why? Well, because it was obvious that the God of this man was more powerful than his own gods. And as we read there in Psalm 105, he permitted, God permitted no man to oppress them, and he reproved kings for their sakes. Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. See, when God says, this is the way it's going to be, this is the way it's going to be. 
And when God puts a hedge around His people, that hedge cannot be breached, even if you're Pharaoh. Thinking about the fact the kings and queens of history are all pawns, literally, in the hands of God. And what transpires? Transpires because of God's allowance. Sometimes we don't understand why that is. We don't understand why God allows an Adolf Hitler to come to power. We don't understand why God allows a holocaust, the destruction of thousands and millions of the people called Jews. And blood has poured forth through the pages of history. Um, Churchill pointed out that history seems to be simply the story of one war after another. And many historians today are trying to, to, to go to the other side of the picture, and they're trying to, to, to write the history of the common man and talk about the people you normally don't talk about and, and try to play down the kings and queens and the wars. But, you know, that's really hard to do. It's hard to do because those common men didn't write any history. They were mostly illiterate, and how do, what do we know about them? You have to, it has to be generalized. You don't even know their names. It's never been recorded. And war plays such a dynamic role in the shaping of human culture. You look at any culture you want to talk about anywhere in this world and you'll find war has been a major dynamic in bringing that culture to the place where it is today. And today we think of our own culture and, and it's not so much only the wars we participated in but the supplying of weapons to other people that has helped to maintain our economy and keep us more fully employed. You know, it's, it's really diabolical when you think about it. But that's the way it's been. It's been fighting and feuding since creation day, as Tennessee Ernie Ford sang. And uh, that's just about it. Uh, he expressed his outrage and he banished them from the land. Again, Spurgeon gives good insight here. He says, It must have been very humbling for the man of God to be rebuked by a heathen. It is sad indeed when the worldling shames the believer, yet it is too often the case. The Christian who tries to keep his relationship to God quiet and to be one of the boys at work uh, will find himself in a very embarrassing situations many times because uh, God is at work. <laughs> he said, you shall be my witnesses. He didn't say, please, if you will, if you've got time and if you're, if you're daring enough, be my witness. He says, you're going to be my witness. And so God is going to make it happen and uh, when we try to cover it up, we end up embarrassing ourselves and him, as Abram and Sari did here. Now, Pharaoh wanted to make sure these people got out of Egypt. <clears throat> He'd had enough of them. He didn't want, and no matter how beautiful she was, he didn't want to see her anymore. I, probably he had never really seen her. It was just going by the uh, report of his officers. And, and he wanted them gone. And just to make sure they left, he sent with them an armed escort. Now, that armed escort was not to protect them. 
It was to see to it that they got out of the country. Abram didn't need an armed escort to protect him. He had his own armed escort within his own household, as far as any small groupings would have been concerned. <clears throat> so he is sent out of the land. I think Abram's joy at having his wife back was seriously tempered by the shame that he felt at this particular moment for having been ejected from the land, not because of his witness, but because of evil, which he had done. And Peter speaks directly to that in uh, 1 Peter 2.20. You're all familiar with this verse, but I think it bears repeating often. 1 Peter 2.20 For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Huh. See, there was no favor with God in the bearing with this shame at this moment. As Abram and, and Sarah left the land and, and were being escorted out of the land, uh, God could not look down with favor. I mean, he always looks down with the unmerited favor of his grace and mercy, but with the favor that Peter is talking about here, uh, because they were being ejected for their own sin. They were being punished for their own folly not because they had done God's will. Now, to me, it's so interesting to compare this Pharaoh with a later Pharaoh. This Pharaoh experienced these calamities, found out the problem, got rid of the problem. But there will be a later Pharaoh in the days of Moses who will see his land destroyed and his own son die in his arms before he will get rid of the problem. Now, it's true, we have to recognize, of course, that we're talking about a smaller group. They had just kind of come in. They'd only been a while in the land, whereas, of course, uh, the Israelite clan had grown in Egypt itself, and too many pharaohs had become a part of Egypt. And so it was sort of like committing major surgery. But nevertheless, I think, had this pharaoh been in that pharaoh's position, uh, he might have been a little wiser and moved a little sooner, although that's hard to really know. Abram and Sarai could have been a major blessing in Egypt. Now, we don't know exactly how that could have been, but God could have made them a blessing. Remember what he said. Let me just read these verses again. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. So you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. Curse those who curse you. See, Abram was supposed to be a blessing. He was supposed to go to Egypt. Fine. Uh, there's a wideness in God's mercy. If, if he chooses to go to Egypt, whether God specifically led him there or not, God would have been with him. God would have helped him. God would have used him. But instead of being a blessing there in the land of Egypt, he not only was a poor witness, he brought trouble to the land. We're not even told what that uh, plague consisted of, really. We're told later on, when it happens the second time up in uh, the land of the Philistines, 
what the problem was, but here it isn't really specific as to what even the plague was. But whatever it was, it was troublesome. It was so troublesome that Pharaoh was willing to get rid of them and to make them leave his country. I think it's very important to note that the Egyptians were probably impressed with God's power, but I don't think they were very impressed with God's people. You know, and I think sometimes that's the way it is today. When people see God work, they're impressed with His power, but they're not always impressed with His people. And you and I are unfortunately living in a day and age when there's an awful lot of innuendos and uh, critical speech about people who are quote, Christian leaders. And every time something happens, I don't know if you get that sinking feeling, though, when another pastor has been found to, you know, be off the, doing something totally of, of the world and uh, bringing discredit to the name of God. But it's really, you know, you have to say, well, Lord, you know, and we know that your power can never be diminished no matter what we do, but it sure is a sad thing when your people bring dishonor to your name. And I think that's one of the reasons why we need to live as close to God as possible every moment of every day, that we don't bring dishonor to his name because it's so easy to do. It reminds me of maybe some of you saw that uh, InterVarsity, no, I forget what film, Ventures for Victory, some, some film that was filmed many, many years ago. I saw this 20 years ago or more maybe. But it was talking about one of these basketball teams that goes overseas and plays and has halftime uh, ministry and so forth, uh, Christian players. And, and the film talks about one of the players on the Christian team getting so angry that he, that he hits the other guy with a basketball, you know, in his anger, the other team. And the story goes on to talk about the terrible witness that was, but then how this man would go, on, would go back and he would confess his folly and that that would make a great impact on this uh, I think it was an Oriental person. They were playing in the Orient or someplace. But, you know, that so easily, so easily can take place. And that's why we're constantly praying for our teams at, at Simpson, that they will always show forth the glory of God in the way they play. And don't play like some of their opposition plays. It's really amazing to listen to the language of some of the other teams that play us that are from, quote, Christian schools. By that, I mean Roman Catholic schools. And um, mm, curls your hair, <laughs> curls my hair anyway, uh, to hear some of the things they say while they're playing our team. And, you know, it's hard for our, our people, guys and gals, to really uh, stay with their, their faith and commitment in the, under the pressure of, of play. And so we need to pray for them, and, and we do. I think it's important also to notice that in spite of their faithlessness and their compromise, God protected Abram and Sarai. He didn't leave them. He went with them. Now, that being true, could he not have protected them had they remained in Canaan and somehow provided for them in the midst of the famine? Or could he not have protected them and, and, and met their need had they been truthful before Pharaoh? If God is able to keep us and be with us in the midst of this kind of a situation where we have been foolish, where we have done something that has caused great harm, 
and God is with us and keeps us during that time, what would he do for us when we walk in obedience? I think Abram is slowly learning this point. Satan spread a net of fear in front of them and they were trapped. But God didn't forsake them and that's what I think is so encouraging to us today. Instead, he rescued them. Thoroughly shamed, I think they repented. I'm certain they repented. And learned a little bit more about faith in God. Let me read from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has taken you, overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. This applies to Abram and it applies to us. He didn't have 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10 to read. But the truth of God being present with him had been made as a specific promise to him. God had appeared to him, God had spoken to him, and said it in so many words. And this applies to you and to me today. We cannot look at this and say, I would never be so stupid as Abram and Sari were. <laughs> really? <laughs> we probably have already been more stupid in several situations. But God is faithful, and that's the key, the key to this whole thing. God is faithful, even if we are not. Page 34 of your outline, separation of Abram and Lot. It's, it's interesting if that's true that this is the second time, or well, the first of at least two times when the Egyptians were spoiled, uh, you know, when they left Egypt and the Exodus again. Their, their wealth was virtually the wealth of Egypt. Yeah, uh, amazing, isn't it? Yeah. I think in this case, of course, it's a smaller amount, but nevertheless, it was significant. Because when we read this passage, well, let's, let's read the first few verses here of chapter 8. Well, let's, let's read 1 through 13 of 13. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him and Lot with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And I think that's a direct implication of, of much acquisition, although he was a wealthy man before he went there. And he went on his journeys from the, from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar, which he had made there formerly. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herbs, herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of life's, Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling in the land then Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, 
nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. If to the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered, watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley, and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly, and sinners against the Lord. It must have been quite a picture to have seen this caravan of hundreds and hundreds of individuals and probably thousands of laden camels and other animals and of course the vast herds moving eastward, probably northeastward, across the Nile Delta towards the border, escorted by units of Pharaoh's army, probably cavalry. As they moved westward, eastward, I'm sorry, northeastward, we see this description, this great caravan laden with gold and silver and other riches. I mean, this man was a wealthy man, Abram. And some, of course, say, well, so was Abram, so should I be. Well, probably not. God had reasons for allowing Abram to be a man of vast wealth. God has reasons for us possessing what we have or don't have. Abram returned to the Negev. Again, a 200-mile journey back across the top of the Sinai into the Negev from whence he came. Now, we don't know how long they were in Egypt. We could read that passage there in, uh, in chapter 12 and assume that, well, he was there and, and right away they saw her and right away they took her in and right away this camping and boom, you know, that they were in and out in three months. I don't think so. I think that there was a lot more time involved here. Personally believe we're talking about at least years, probably a minimum of two years were involved in this Egyptian sojourn, maybe more. It's very difficult to know. But one of the indicators is the fact that when he gets back to the Negev and returns to Bethel, there is no comment, no mention made of famine at all. And since before he left, it said that the famine was severe in the land, this would have meant that uh, the grass was burning up, that the crops were dying, that there was no rain, that the streams were drying up, that conditions were extremely difficult. And that doesn't just turn around overnight. So probably we're talking about moving out of that drought mode into a wet mode again. And as they move back into the land two or three years later, the famine conditions have passed. Notice we're told in this first verse, kind of appended to the very end, and Lot was with him. Now think about that for a minute with relative, relative to some of the things we read in this passage this morning. This meant Lot witnessed everything that took place in Egypt, right? He heard his uncle lie and his aunt participate in the lie. He saw his aunt taken off into the Pharaoh's harem. Did he talk to Abram during this time? Probably. He saw the shame 
that was heaped upon Abram and Sarai as a result of this. Did this create a cynicism in Lot? Did this create in Lot a sense that I don't want to be with these people anymore or a, a sense that, hey, you know, his God is, is okay, but uh, not that much to worry about. It's hard to tell. But certainly, Lot was impacted by what had taken place and may have played a role in the subsequent parting that we read about today. Now, they didn't stay in the Negev, apparently. It seems, the passage seems to indicate that it says, he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel. It seems like he just passed through the Negev this time. Returning back to Bethel, why? What would attract him to Bethel? If the famine was over and grass was growing again in the Negev, Negev is a wide open, expansive place, kind of a good place for a nomad to, to operate. There aren't as many hills for an enemy to hide behind. You know, open land, you can see the wild animals that might attack your animals, uh, your, your herds more easily. Why did he not stay in the Negev? Well, you know, we could say, well, the famine wasn't quite completely over and it still hadn't recovered and so he was going to find better grassland. Doesn't, doesn't indicate that there. I think the reason was he was going back to the last place he built an altar. I think he had a deep need in his heart to go back and meet the Lord at the place where God last appeared to him. And so I think that's why he was going back there. There, we're told, he did the same thing he did the last time he was in Bethel in verse 4, and to the place of the altar, which he had made there formerly, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Go back up to the previous chapter, for verse 8. He proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel, pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. He went back to that touchstone. God meets us any place. God is with us everywhere. But sometimes it seems we need that touchstone, that place where, which will reinforce our faith. It doesn't have to be a place. It can be a condition. It can be an attitude, whatever. But in his case, it was a place he went back to, not because he thought God was only there, but because there was a place where he was right before the Lord. And I think he wanted to go back to that particular place to renew his commitment to serve the Lord faithfully. And that's what's our great hope with the Lord, is it not? He'll take us at whatever point we are and move us on from there. No matter how, f how awfully we've acted, how we have blown it, God will pick us up from there and move us on, and God will use us. Did God use David after the terrible folly with Bathsheba? Yeah. <laughs> Did God use Samuel in spite of the fact that his sons were awful? Did God use Eli or Eli in spite of the fact that his sons were, were awful? Yeah. Uh, God uses us wherever we are in spite of our failure. If, our, if we've come before him and repented of our sins and earnestly sought his face, God will use us. God will take us from that point. And God wants to work with us in spite of our failings and to make a difference in the lives of many people. I think that he felt a lot as Ezra felt a millennium and a half later. As Ezra came back from exile to Judea and he found the people living in sin. 
The people that had come back from the exile in the first wave were living in sin. And this so distressed Ezra that uh, he prayed as we read in Ezra chapter 9. In, in verse 3, we're told that he uh, went before the Lord and he had torn his garments and pulled, pulled some of his hair from his head and from his beard and sat down appalled. Then in verse 5, But at the evening offering I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, O oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to Thee, my God. For our iniquities have risen above our heads, and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. We often have a tendency, I think, to not see how iniquitous we are sometimes, and to realize how proud we are, and how that stinks in God's nostrils. And here he was, I don't know if you've ever felt that way, if you've ever gone before the Lord and felt utterly embarrassed, I have. Certainly we all have, if we're honest with ourselves, ashamed to go before God and to admit what we have done. But we must, because he says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive. And so Abram, I'm sure, felt much like Ezra, only in, instead of crying out for himself and his nation, he just has to cry out for himself and his wife because they're the ones who have committed such folly. But David, in his great prayer before the Lord after his iniquity with Bathsheba, penned these words in Psalm 51, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou will not despise. And that's our hope. That's our joy. That's our peace. That's our salvation. We must go before God with a broken and contrite heart. Not because we have committed some heinous, gross sin that the world knows about, but because of those even little sins that are always creeping into our lives, the little foxes that spoil the vine, as the Scripture says, and we need to go before him. And his mercy, God's mercy, is an expression to us of both his attributes and of his understanding of our condition. And we'll end with this passage in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. For both he who sacrifices and those who are... I'm sorry... For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Think about that for a minute, and that is a powerful statement. We have the Father as Jesus has the Father, saying, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing thy praise, and again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, 
He had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So it's not only the attributes of God which are expressed in his mercy towards us in hearing the the voice of the broken and contrite heart, but the fact that Jesus has been here, he's been among us, he's walked in the flesh, he understands our condition and is willing to hear and willing to forgive. That's our great hope and that's our great joy. And that was Abram's hope and joy.